Okay. All right. Episode nine, I think this is. What's the subject of this one? Goalies. Okay, I'll see you a lot later. Yeah. Hello, I'm Colin Schindler, and welcome to another edition of Football Ruined My Life, the podcast series which looks at English football through the prism of the glorious days before the advent of the Premier League. Joining me today, as usual, are my co-septuagenarians, whose footballing experience goes back to the late 1950s. There's Mr Leicester City, John Holmes, and the distinguished football writer, Paddy Barclay. And we're talking today about goalkeepers. Called it briefly England's number one. It's a phrase I remember not from the 60s and 70s. I remember it attributed to the city crowd chanting it for the first time that I remember listening to it when Tony Coton was in goal. That was in about 1990. But I've also got a list of England's number one goalkeepers going back to the start of football after World War II. And I've chopped out the names of goalkeepers who made one or two appearances. So it starts with Frank Swift and it finishes with Ramsdale. But in between comes Ted Ditchburn, who was at Spurs, Bert Williams of Wolves, Gil Merrick of Birmingham City, Reg Matthews of Coventry City, Alan Hodgkinson of Sheffield United, Eddie Hopkinson of Bolton Wanderers, Colin McDonald, who played at one point for Berry, Ron Springett, Gordon Banks, Tony Waiters, Peter Bonetti, Gordon West, and then we come to Schiltz. The famous Schultz, who has 125 caps, Clements, and then a lot of players all had very few games. Rimmer, Corrigan, Phil Parks, Nigel Spink had one game, and Gary Bailey, I think, had one game. And then Chris Woods, 43, David Seaman, 75, Nigel Martin, 23, Tim Flowers, 11, Mike Walker's son, first name was... was it? Oh, the Spurs player, yeah. He also played for Leicester as well. Played four times. Ian Walker was the man. Ian, Ian Walker. Walker, yeah. Then David James, played 53 times. Robinson of Leeds, to yep. my astonishment, but 44 caps. Yep. Then Joe Hart at 75, Pickford with 45. Pope has already got 10, and Ramsdale's got three. That's mm-hmm. the list of goalkeepers from 1945 onwards. Yeah. John, who stands out for you among that list of goalkeepers as great goalkeepers? Well, I watched two of them, obviously, extensively. Gordon Banks, who Leicester side from Chesterfield and was part of the uh, 1960s success story of Leicester. A brilliant goalkeeper, instinctive, but also a goalkeeper who commanded his area. He was followed by the, in my opinion, best ever, Peter Shilton, and Leicester subsequently had quite a few good keepers, Tim Flowers and Ian Walker, both of whom played for us. But Shilton and Banks obviously stand out. Shilton's record is absolutely extraordinary. He played a 1,000 league games. He played 125 times for England, even despite the fact that Don Revy decided that Clements was a better keeper. Clements was a pretty good keeper, lovely bloke as well, Ray Clements, sadly no longer with us, but in my opinion, not in the league of Shilton, who won games for you. He not only saved games, he won games. To hear Shilton talk about goalkeeping was extraordinary. His explanation of technique, I once remember him in my office when someone casually made a remark about Gary Sprake being a good goalkeeper, 
and Schultz explaining why he wasn't a good goalkeeper, why his technique was flawed in all sorts of ways. Shilton could have become and should have become, in my opinion, one of the great goalkeeping coaches of the world. And it was a shame that he was lost to England as a goalkeeping coach. Ray Clements became the coach, but Ray was never a devotee of the science of goalkeeping in the way that Peter was. Paddy, as a Scotsman, obviously, you, you have a, a particular yen for great goalkeepers because Scotland <laughs> has produced so many of them. Who stands out for you and why? Uh, well, my England's number one is a Welshman. If we mean by England, English football, yes. then, in my opinion, the best goalkeeper I ever saw was Neville Southall mm. of Everton and Wales. I think Wales at one stage had four world-class players, Rush, Hughes, Southall and Kevin Ratcliffe. Not Giggs? I don't think at the same time. No, Giggs was a bit later. Giggs was certainly a top-class international player, but I think he was marginally later. No, Southall was my personal favourite. And I would say the next one in the next little group would be another who wasn't English, and that was Pat Jennings. Yes. But by and large, of those English ones... I always feel sorry, and you'll sympathise with me here, Colin. How many caps did Joe Corrigan win? Oh, minimally four or five. It was absolutely ridiculous that such a great goalkeeper, and in my opinion, he was a great goalkeeper, not just a good one, in his latter period. He improved after the age of about 25, 26, and became a truly great goalkeeper. His problem... He was behind Shilton and Clemens. As yeah. was uh, actually Phil Parks, who was at West Ham, who was, who was a pretty good keeper. Yeah. The one remark that I remember, I sat at Nottingham Forest with Keith Weller mm-hmm. and Forest were playing West Ham. And one of the West Ham fans turned around and said to us, Phil Parks, pretty good keeper, isn't he, Keith? And Keith said, he's a pretty good goalkeeper. The fellow at the other end is a brick wall. (laughs) And that from a player who was a pretty good player and a pretty good judge, who probably played with them both, I thought was a fair testament. Can I ask you that, because you raised the question yourself, why didn't he become an England coach if he was that eloquent about the art of goalkeeping and could explain it? Why on earth wasn't he the England goalkeeping coach? Graham Taylor was the manager. He did want him to become the England goalkeeping coach. But Peter, because of the problems he had with gambling, had the need for more money. It wasn't going to pay him. And I don't think he felt he would be valued as he should have been as part of the team and so on. He became a manager, didn't do it particularly well, actually. Had a bit of success early on at Plymouth, but then uh, it fell away. And his later life, as Peter will tell you, was ruined by gambling. It's so many, affects so many people. I can't begin to describe the sadness with which those stories begin and end because such a waste. Schiltz was not only a gambling addict, he was also an alcoholic at one stage. And at one stage, I remember saying to my partner, I think he'll have to go back on the booze, it's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Anyway, moving on. Paddy, when we were in our earlier years... There was a belief, possibly wrongly held by a lot of people in this country, by which I mean Britain, that we had the best goalkeepers in the world and that that all the foreign goalkeepers were flashy, they never caught the ball, they punched when they should catch, and they basically couldn't hold a candle to half a dozen or a dozen 
English goalkeepers in the first division. Do you remember that? And yes. What basis for reality was that? Yeah, some basis in reality because the world was a bigger place then and also less homogenous place. We judged football by the standards of our game. That meant dominating, cutting out crosses, stuff like that. They weren't expected to be footballers. It wasn't even a 10-man game in those days. The actual football was played by sort of seven players, maybe. Whereas now, if you look at Manchester City, you look at Liverpool, it's played by 11. But yes, continental goalkeepers, continental goalkeepers as we called them, because we only knew one continent, were said to be flashy and, oh, why, oh, why didn't they catch the ball? Yes. Well, Well, of course, now goalkeepers know punching is almost as important as catching. Now, because you come for more balls than you used to. And I don't think you do come no, for more I, I balls. Agree with I, I think the opposite, Paddy, is actually true. I can remember watching Shilton, this would have been early 1970s, mm. practising at the end of coaching, mm. punching with one hand. Yeah. And he said, I need to do 10 minutes now on my left hand, yeah. punching the ball. Yeah. Single-handed punch. The best punch, of course, was the two-handed punch mm. they felt in those days. But Shilton practiced with both hands. This was the degree in which he went into it. And also in those days, he believed in dominating the area. He cleared people out of his area. Mm. Whereas now, goalkeepers more inclined to stay on their line, actually. They've become taller, of course. There were keepers in the late 50s under six feet. Nigel Sims of Aston Villa was five foot eight. Laurie Civil, quite a successful keeper with Ipswich, saved a lot of penalties, Laurie Civil. He was only about five foot ten. Les Green, who played in the Derby side that yes. won the league, was about five foot ten. Nowadays you can't be a keeper unless you're six foot plus. And that's to do a lot of it with diet, isn't it? You look at the difference that diet has made in sports in lots of parts of the world. The Indians never used to have fast bowlers in cricket. Mm, Now they're the fastest bowlers in the world in India and Pakistan. Japanese people always used to be very, very small, but the diet changed. And now there are Japanese people playing basketball, for goodness sake. I remember that the end of the 50s, from Manchester City's point of view, we had the best goalkeeper in the world. But the only other one that we'd heard of, and I think this was probably quite widely shared, as foreign goalkeepers go, was Lev Yashin. Yeah. And I don't know why. I may have got this wrong, but I think his team may have been Dynamo Moscow, or Moscow Dynamo, as they were called yes, at the time. Yes, I imagine it was. Probably because they were a touring team. They did a lot of touring in the West. That He may well have become famous through that. But yes, yeah, certainly he was the best known, along with any Brazilian goalkeeper since, I've forgotten his name, but the 1951 who suffered... Santos Gilmar. No, no, I, I mean the one who played in the disastrous final of from the Brazilian point of view in 1950 when they hosted the tournament yeah. but were beaten in the final by Uruguay and the goalkeeper was blamed and he had a dog's life. So we thought from then on that all Brazilian goalkeepers were useless and they didn't get enough practice, of course, in international matches because the ball was always at the other end. But another point, sorry, to answer the earlier question you made, Colin. Now, this is a ridiculous generalisation, but most countries which played football had lower rainfall than us. Therefore, the ball was generally lighter and therefore moved more in the air and that's why... They tended not to catch and to prefer to punch. That may well explain the 
prevalence of punching today and the lack of catching because we know balls are light and the balls swerve much more than they ever did. So yes, I hadn't actually thought about it in the context of of previous generations when we had the big leather cannonball with the wet leather and the hard laces in the middle of it. But that makes a lot of sense. Let's pick up on the Scottish goalkeepers only because I'm giving you the chance to to say they weren't all ridiculous. I mean, we are making judgments based on what, two or three goalkeepers and ignoring any good ones, I would imagine. Well, there were two matches that both played at Wembley and televised nationally. The 9-3 and 5-1 defeats in the 60s and 70s that Scotland suffered. In each case, the goalkeeper, Frank Haffey, in the 9-3 and Stuart Kennedy in the 5-1 had absolute nightmares. I mean, I can remember Frank Haffey spilling a ball and Stuart Kennedy doing a, some kind of Morris dance with one of the posts <laughs> in the 5-1. So those were images that stuck. People tended not to remember Ronnie Simpson winning a European Cup before any English goalkeeper did. And of course, it's no longer the case. Scotland has been producing good goalkeepers, perhaps not a great one, but very good goalkeepers, most recently Craig Gordon, in the last 10, 15 years. I think it's been laid to rest, but you're quite right. In the period we're talking about, You took your life in your hands if you bought a Scottish goalkeeper. That's true. There were good ones. The Spurs double team had a a tremendous Scottish goalkeeper, Bill Brown. There was Laurie Leslie, who went down from Airdrie to West Ham, and in my opinion, quite a small goalkeeper, but one of the most underrated goalkeepers I've ever seen. If we're talking about keepers, you look at the transformation of Brazil. You've referred to the goalkeeper in 1950. The weak link of their team in the greatest Brazilian team ever, Mm. 1970, was Felix, the goalkeeper, who's definitely dodgy. German goalkeepers, let's think back to the Real Madrid demolition of Eintracht Frankfurt, if anybody sees a film of that, the German keeper was pretty hopeless. Yeah. Tilkovsky, who played in the 1966 side, was not a very good keeper. Mm. Sepp Meyer, who succeeded yeah. him, was a was, pretty good keeper. Was good. Then you rise to the heights with Brazil. Edison and Alisson are the two best keepers probably now in the Premier League. And Oliver Kahn was probably the best, the, one of the keepers who perfected this keeper as a eleven uh, footballer and in Neu- the team. Neuer. Neuer also. Oh, yeah. Neuer, for me, the best German goalkeeper. John, you raised the question about Shilton not just saving games, but winning games. Can you just expand briefly on that? What do you mean by that? Well, I can remember various games that he played where he demoralised the opposition. I remember one game particularly where Leicester played against Stoke and Jimmy Greenhoff, who was a very good player, playing for Stoke at that point, had his umpteenth amazing save from Shilton. And Jimmy Greenoff lay on the ground and thumped his fists <laughs> into the mud. There was a game that Brian Glanville described between Leicester and West Ham. And I heard this from various people, not only from Glanville, but also from Alan Burchinell, John Samuels and Keith Weller. All of those said that was the greatest display they had ever seen from any keeper anywhere. He won them the game. Any other keeper, they would have lost the game. There were games that Shilton played for Forest in the season they won the league, not least the game at Coventry City, where they actually clinched the title, where he made absolutely incredible saves, such that they demoralised the opposition. 
he was on his day literally unbeatable. Mm. And allied to that was that he had the technique. I mean, Schiltz thought goalkeeping was the most important subject in the world. Mm. He would probably tell you now that he could still play. He's older than me, 73 now. Mm. He played till he was 50. He played in the World Cup when he was over 40. Yeah. He played a thousand league games. These are incredible statistics. And I think also when you take those statistics, and John, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I can only remember watching one match in all that time, which I think was his last for England, but he just couldn't reach penalties. He simply couldn't get to them. It was, I think, a third place match, was it? In, um, yeah, it would have been. Yes. 1990. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it went to a penalty shootout and he just couldn't get, he kept guessing right, but he couldn't get to them. And that's the only time I can remember ever thinking, oh, Shilton's having a bit of a dodgy game today. I mean, I can remember, Gordon Banks was, a, of course, a great goalkeeper. But Gordon Banks had an absolute nightmare in the 1963 Cup final against Manchester United. I remember John, that John's well. never forgiven him. He threw a couple in. I don't remember Shilton's nightmare. I honestly cannot remember. A lot of people say the Poland match. Yeah. I didn't, at the time, think that was a big mistake. In comparison... Ball bounced in front of him, didn't it? No, it went underneath him. It was one of those. He probably got his angle slightly wrong there. It, it, it wasn't very often... One-on-one, Shilton used to dictate. He never used to go down early. He would frighten the players coming in to shooting where he wanted them to shoot. Mm. He had that sort of power. If you talk to opposition forwards about it, they all said to be confronted by him was an extraordinary experience. And what shouldn't be forgotten was that he also coached and brought on a very young keeper underneath him in the shape of Mark Wallington, who became a very good keeper. Played the record number of consecutive games for Leicester. And he also coached Chris Woods to become a very, very good keeper, who later took over at Forest from him and played for England and so on, and won the League Cup when Schiltz was ineligible. I'm going to bring up one name because who and what he was, and that's Bert Troutman. And Bert Troutman was my first great hero. It was the hero of every city-supporting boy in Manchester. And there's a, fa- there's a story, possibly apocryphal, but it did have some currency in Manchester in the 50s, that Bosby was so in awe of Troutman, or he felt that his players were in awe of Troutman, that he told them not to look in his eyes. When they were, <laughs> when they were approaching this penalty area, don't look at Troutman. Just keep your eyes down on the ball and shoot without looking at him, because he would save everything. He was. He was a truly great keeper, and he kept a very poor city side up year after year after year. So in terms of what you were saying about Shilton winning games, I think Troutman did did the same. I don't think that story is apocryphal, Colin, because I think he probably told Bobby Charlton, because Bobby Charlton was one of his victims. And of course, there aren't many better opponents of goalkeepers in his time than Bobby Charlton. And to stay on Manchester City... There was, of course, Busby's great friend, a man he loved. Frank Swift. Who preceded Troutman and who died at Munich. Busby having made one last attempt to sign him from the news of the world, (laughs) to whom he was contracted as a journalist. And he died, of course, in Munich because he was a journalist. The news of the world sent him to the Wales-Israel game on the same day as the Munich match. And Matt Busby wanted him on the Manchester United and offered him a free trip. If there was ever a time where goalkeepers mattered, 
and it was obvious to everybody. And I suppose we're going to go back to that game that those of us who saw it will never forget, which is the quarterfinal against West Germany in Leon in Mexico in 1970. And the upset tummy, whatever for whatever reason, that took Gordon Banks out of the match, mm. where he's replaced by Benetti, who was a good keeper and who just froze on the day. And people blamed him. Was it unfair, John, that people blamed Benetti for losing to West Germany, having been 2-0 up? To put the blame on one person is very hard, you know. But Bonetti did have a poor game and he was a very good keeper. He didn't play many times for England, of course, because of Banks. And Banks was the best keeper in the 1966 World Cup. I think the only one who even got near him was the Argentinian goalkeeper called Roma or something like that. The other keepers were not particularly good. It's interesting, you talk about Troutman being a German and yet the German keepers... I don't remember any other German keepers being very good until they got Sepp Meyer in, who was a different style, but obviously had great success. And so certainly we didn't feel the need early on to sign foreign goalkeepers, but now they're almost all foreign goalkeepers. Now, why is that? That is my feeling. We, we have the best goalkeeper in the world and now we don't. I think goalkeeping is very much a matter of technique. Shilton explained that to me in detail. And I think what happened was when football started to be taken more seriously, there was less distrust of coaching and technique in continental Europe than there was in this country where there was a view that goalkeepers were born, not made, that it was an instinctive sort of thing rather than a technique thing. As I said, when Shilton explained why, in his opinion, Sprake wasn't a top keeper, it wasn't, oh, he's not got the natural ability. It was that his technique was wrong. And Shilton's technique was brilliant. He worked out all the angles. He talked about catching the ball at the highest point, your positioning, working out the angles, which he used to do at home. And I believe there was more of a belief in that on the continent when coaching started to come in than there was in this country. Goalkeepers were left to sort of train on their own. Shilton took that to an extreme. One of the beauties, I think it's aesthetically just beautiful to watch a goalkeeper going for a high cross behind him, as it were, with both arms outstretched to outjump the centre forward whoever's jumping up against him and to catch the ball with both hands and falling backwards as he does so. It's a great art to be able to do. And Shilton did that, of course, incredibly well. Shilton's argument was you should always catch the ball at your highest point because that way... If you stretch your arms above your head, you were always taller yeah. than the tallest centre forward. Unless you were playing against Diego Maradona, of course. Well, that wasn't a cross. <laughs> no, neither did he head it. <laughs> no, right, OK. Peter Shilton played 125 games for England, 50 more than the next two, who both played 75. One of them is David Seaman, which wouldn't come as a surprise because no. he seemed to be around for a long time and a very fine keeper in his own right. Very much Can so. you guess who the other one who played 75 times was? For Ray him? Clemens. No, Clemens played 61. Joe Hart. Joe Hart, correct. Joe Hart. Now, that surprised it, me. Joe Hart had a great short peak, in my opinion. His confidence was fatally short when he was rejected by Guardiola for having yeah. not skillful enough feet. I don't think he's ever been the same since. At his peak, he was good. I still think that 75 stands out. Seaman, on the other hand, was an obviously wonderful all-round goalkeeper. 
Yet he was probably the unlike to paraphrase Napoleon. I mean, don't give me an unlucky goalkeeper. Poor old David Seaman was on the wrong end of two of the greatest goals of all time, which were Naim for Arsenal yes. and Ronaldinho. And they were very yes. similar. Balls that drifted, yeah. making yes. him look as if he'd come out too far. A bit unlucky from that point of view. But certainly 75 is the right number for a goalkeeper of Seaman's fantastic all-round ability. He seems and, to have and presence. a solidity about him, yes. which is, I think, a great hallmark of a goalkeeper. Do you know, if you've ever met him, I shouldn't think there's much difference between him raising his voice and lowering it. And I think his career was that very, very steady. He exuded that sense of permanence and stability. And that's what the back four need. You know, yeah, they, they need that, that sense that so. behind them, there's a man who's not going to give it up easily. Very much John, so. I want to talk to you about the signing of Shilton by Clough. There looked to be a great sense of the missing piece of the jig. And in a sense, it happened in Liverpool recently when Klopp signed Alisson. There was a sense of Van Dijk and Alisson provides the missing piece of the jigsaw. And I'm sure that Clough probably felt much the same way that you win things with great goalkeepers, and you sold him a great goal. Was that Clough or was that Taylor? Clough had tried to sign him before. When he was at Leeds, he tried to sign him during that short period of time, but they felt they got a good keeper. Peter Taylor was completely in awe of Chilton. Peter Taylor, who was Clough's assistant, was a goalkeeper yeah. and was in awe of Chilts. I remember exactly the day, well, were about four days. It was a saga, the whole story but Clough of course didn't appear for a long time we went to Nottingham Forest it was a Friday we went to the city ground we were conducted into a little room in the old stand there and Taylor who was clearly nervous came in and said Brian will be here soon he's just got one or two things to do this that and the other and he sat there sort of looking at him and then getting nervous and walking off and there was Ken Smales, who is the Nottingham Forest secretary, scratching his pencil and looking terribly embarrassed and not sure what was going on at all. I think that was a general rule when Clough was in charge at Nottingham Forest. <laughs> no one knew what the hell was going on. A lot of Clough's motivation was about dominating people and how they saw him and people being in awe of him. It was very important that he was the most important person in the room. It was designed to disconcert, and that was why Clough turned up late to sign Schilt. Was Clough and Taylor's respect and the clear importance that they put on Chilton? Because right up till then, it had always struck me as loony in football, how a 15-goal-a-season striker was worth, oh, any money you mm. could scrape mm. together. But a minus 12-goals-a-season goalkeeper, mm. yeah. who basically was worth as much was pennies. In fact, you didn't even like paying a fee. You tried to get one for nothing. Chilton broke that record, didn't yeah. he? When he was transferred from Leicester that, to Stoke, that, it was 340000 That exactly. That was a record fee and for that was a record fee, point. And that changed, certainly English football's attitude towards goalkeepers. That explains, doesn't it, a bit of Chilton's significance yeah. in the history of goalkeeping, that he did change that perception. To go back... Did Clough understand how important Shilton was? One of the things that Clough said during that first meeting was, you've made one club go bust, young man. You're not going to make another one go bust. I don't know whether that was directed at me or Peter, actually. But anyway, the fact was that 
Stoke had gone virtually bust and the fee when he went from Stoke to Forest was less than that from Leicester to Stoke. But they didn't want to pay him what they would have paid to a striker at that point. They wanted to pay less, but obviously we were arguing differently and Clough reluctantly came to that conclusion. And of course, we forget that was an extraordinary achievement. That side came up from the second division and won the first division the next season with virtually the same side. He had Gemmell before. He had Viv Anderson before. He had Tony Woodcock before. He had a bloke that he called a layabout from Liverpool, Larry Lloyd at centre-half. <laughs> he had Kenny Burns rejected from Birmingham City playing in the back four. He had John Robertson on the wing, who was a genius. He had Martin O'Neill. He had Ian Bowyer, ex-Man City player, who'd always been a sort of workman-like player, never a star. And he had John McGovern, who was nobody's idea of a star footballer. But Shilton transformed that. I think they only conceded about 18 goals or something that season. An extraordinary record. They were so dominant for those two or three years, weren't they? 78, 79, 18. They were. They won the European Cup twice, Twice, in consecutive years. Second year, they won it against Hamburg. Mm. Shilton had one of those games. He won that game for them. Hamburg were reckoned to be cast-iron favourites. They had a lot of really top players. They were ahead of Bayern Munich at that stage, Hamburg. And they didn't score, and that was one of Schultz's games. And I think Clough learned to love Schultz, that he'd learned that Schultz had made his side a difference. And Nottingham Forest, who came up as an attacking side, as they developed, they became more defensive because Shilton became so good and was so dominant. Well, taking Paddy's point about the value placed on goalkeepers, I remember in the late 50s, in the time where these things just stay in your head for the rest of your life, Manchester United had the most high-priced goalkeeper in, in Britain, possibly in the world, and Manchester City had the highest-priced forward. And the highest-priced forward was Dennis Law, who would, who would cost £55,000 from Huddersfield Town. About six months previously, Matt Busby had signed Harry Gregg yes. for £23,000. And that seemed to be the equivalent of Shilton's £350,000. It was a huge sum. But the gap between 23000 and fifty five is equally significant. So I think that justifies Paddy's point of view that goalkeepers under undervalued. Funnily enough, one of the managers who didn't undervalue goalkeepers was Matt Busby because he also paid a big fee for Reg Allen from Queen's Park Rangers, which was a British record at 10,000. And then he broke the British record, in fact, the world record, to sign Harry Gregg. He the, paid quite a bit of money for Alex Stepney as well, did he? Uh, he did, indeed. That's, that's absolutely right. And, and do you know how many games Alex Stepney played for England? Not many. One. Huh. Ridiculous. I mean, you know, he was a fine goalkeeper. He was a Even fine goalkeeper. Even if Eusebio shot that ball straight at him when he should have won the European Cup for Benfica in 1968. Well, yes. But managers do get a belief in a keeper, don't they? Roy Hodgson would probably say now Mm. that the mistake of his England manager's career was to stick with Joe Hart when Joe Hart had clearly gone. Mm. I mean, when we played in the World Cup, Joe Hart did very little apart from pick the ball out of the net. Mm -hmm. But was he being um, pushed for his place by anybody? And if so, who should have been chosen? I mean, it wasn't a cornucopia of great Well, it was during the era that Paul Robinson ran a few caps and one or two of those that you'd named. We had gone into a poor period, hadn't we, mm. for goalkeepers. The other interesting story about 
goalkeepers and the effect that Chilton had. There was a fellow called John Budgie Burridge. Oh, yes. Who yeah. even copied Chilton's hairstyle. Yes. yes. And apparently one night appeared at his house and, <laughs> and said, I need to talk to you. You're my hero. And Budgie Burridge, he started at Blackpool. He went to Palace. He went to Comedy. He went to a few Came places. Came to City. He was rumoured, and it may be just a rumour, but he may have put it out himself to increase his own sense of eccentricity, that he went to bed in his goalkeeping gloves. I don't know what Mrs Burridge thought about that, but nevertheless, it's the sort of nonsense that appeals to football fans if he's that dedicated, he's gone to bed with his gloves on. He wasn't by any chance a great goalkeeper as far as he knew, but he did have a personality. He wasn't a bad goalkeeper, he had a good career. He was quite good. I wonder if either of you could hazard a guess at the number of transfers John Burridge had in his career. Well, that's what you were saying. It must be about seven or eight. 30. And 30? Yes. But he's still working, you'll be glad to hear, as Good. goalkeeper consultant for Kerala Blasters in the Indian Premier League. Good. Very pleased to hear it. I'm just trying to think, has goalkeeping... How well, obviously it has changed. How has goalkeeping changed over the years? I mean, great goalkeepers are great goalkeepers, as great players are great players. So I dare say that Banks would still be a great goalkeeper today. It's certainly sure would. But has goalkeeping changed in anything other than the way that football in general has changed? Has to be a great goalkeeper? Do you need something more than the, what they used to? Completely, be you have to now be a footballer yeah. because you actually have to play the ball now. Yeah. There were keepers who would be completely one-footed, especially now. You can't be one-footed. You have to have certain football skills, and you have to be able to hit the ball accurately for a number of yards. Remember when I first started watching football, and I think this would apply to both of you. Goalkeepers regularly just picked the ball up and punted it straight up the pitch. Mm -hmm. Banks was actually quite famous early on for throwing the ball and being able to throw the ball quite accurately within the half, notably to David Gibson mm -hmm. or Frank McClintock. That's the biggest change is actually they now have to be footballers. And also the penalty areas are more packed now than they used to be. Do you think that the, the, the pass back which clearly leads to the need to be able to kick with both feet. Do you think that has improved the game? I mean, the pass-back was such a staple of British football up to the time it was made illegal. Has it improved the game? Undoubtedly, without shadow of doubt. Right. I must admit, as a typical conservative, you know, whenever anybody suggests anything about the game, I sort of, no, no. And I thought, oh, I don't, I'm not sure if it's a really good idea, that. But, of course, it's turned out to be absolutely brilliant idea and it's made football a more exciting game. A more exciting game. Brian Glanville titled a series of his really, really good short stories after the first story in that collection. And it was called Goalkeepers Are Crazy. Correct. And there was always a belief that to be a good goalkeeper, you have to be a bit bonkers. Is that true? Where did it come from? It was from? always said that was in England, wasn't it? When I first had contact with German football, they said to me, yes, goalkeepers and left-wingers. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose we've already discussed Burridge, who seemed, appeared to revel in offbeat image. We're, we're discussing Banks and Shilton. Anybody less crazy than those two, it'd be hard to imagine. They were absolutely rock-solid human beings, but then John knows better than I. No, Schiltz was crazy in that he would argue that goalkeeping was the most important thing in the world. <laughs> and the most important position in a side was the goalkeeper. 
how many great sides can you think of with bad goalkeepers? I suppose Brazil 70 being the obvious. Brazil one. 70 are the clear answer. I think Liverpool, I don't think Tommy Lawrence was a top keeper. I don't think Gary Sprague was a top keeper. No, certainly not, no. So the answer is there were those sides that did get away with poor goalkeepers. So can we finally ask the, the last question, are goalkeepers less crazy now? Yes. Why? Because they're technicians. I think you've made the very good point. It's now become a specialist position. It's now valued more and so on. And that is down to the fact that sport as a whole has got more technical and goalkeeping certainly has got more technical. It's, it's an interesting discussion because it is so different. I mean, every outfield player is in a sense the same, but goalkeepers are completely different. And to see a great goalkeeper in action, whether it's arching his back to take a high cross or saving a 25-yarder going to the top right-hand corner, you know, at the end of a game when your team is hanging on by one goal and the cross comes in and there's five of them in the area, five opposing forwards, and the goalkeeper comes and gets it. It's the most wonderful feeling, I mean, not just for the crowd, but I think for the defenders as well to watch a goalkeeper do that. So let's finish by paying tribute to the courage of great goalkeepers and to say thank you again to Paddy Barkley. Thank you very much, Paddy. And thank you again to John Holmes. And from Can me, I tell you one more yes. story about goalkeepers? A few years ago, in the boardroom at Leicester, Leicester were playing Manchester United, and Peter Shilton was there and Peter Schmeichel was there. And they were sitting, talking together. And I went over and, and said to them, listen, you two were the best two keepers I've ever seen in my life. And then plucking courage up, I said, but Schiltz was the greatest. And I walked off very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> very sensible thing to have done. And on that note, I'll say thank you very much indeed to both Paddy Barclay. Thank you, Paddy. Thank you. And to John Holmes. Thank you, John. And from me, Colin Schindler, I'll see you again next time on the next edition of Football Ruined My Life. Thanks for listening. You can let us know what you think about Football Ruined My Life by emailing us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.